Good evening. It's certainly evening tonight because it's, it's black as pitch and couldn't believe it driving in. Dark so soon already. Uh, growing up in, in school, going into elementary school, I remember hearing statements like, uh, America is the greatest nation on earth. America is the richest nation on earth. You're very privileged to live in America where you have so much and you don't have a want for anything. And I suppose all of that is true, but I remember that there was a certain note of pride attached to that and, and that there wasn't really a question about how we got to where we, maybe where we were. How we got to be so successful and, and what sort of things will continue to make us successful. It was simply sort of taken for granted that we live here and we will always be the greatest and the richest and the best. Proverbs 21 verse 4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. There's a dangerous thing that is easy to fall into, and that's a sense of pride. An overinflated sense of self-worth, thinking so much of yourself and forgetting, forgetting God, forgetting the role that He's played in everything. In the time of Amos, the northern kingdom of Israel was in its prime. They were proud of who they were. They were proud of the choices they made to get where they were. In Amos chapter 6, verse 1, if you turn over there, Amos addresses the men of that nation. Amos chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Amos there is playing on the way that they thought of themselves. He's playing on their mentality, their self-view. And that was that they were the distinguished men. They were the established men. They were, you know, they were the high and mighty ones. And not just the high and mighty ones, but they were the high and mighty ones of the foremost of the nations. They thought they were the best of the best. They're about to be destroyed by God. God had certainly blessed them in their time, but because of their pride and their insincerity toward God, all of that was about to change. He's going to destroy them. And on multiple occasions, if you read in the Old Testament, you see multiple times where God was about to destroy the Israelites, that whole nation. But His wrath was turned. And that's where I want to center our thoughts tonight. Because I think it's going to help us a great deal as we start looking at our nation, especially in a time of political change one way or the other. How do you turn God's wrath? How do you pray for your nation when you see it's going in the direction that is perhaps not the best? That's an important question for us as Christians, as God's people, to be able to answer. And we're going to look at it tonight. And what we're going to find is that the humble prayer 
for compassion from those who were pleasing in the sight of God turned his wrath for a time. There does come a time where God's wrath and his judgment is poured out and we can't say anything about it because he's the Lord. But for a time he will listen. For a time he will grant more time. And tonight we're going to see together that compassionate way of God, the merciful way of God, with those who are not deserving. My hope is that we'll gain a clearer picture of, again, how we should pray for our own nation, but also that we would remember the compassion of the God that we serve, and that we would remember to treat each other with it as well. And so looking at times when God turned from destruction, we'll look at just one together in detail, and there are others we could examine. But let's look back at Exodus 32. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 8. The people of Israel have, have just come out of their slavery, and they have built the molten golden calf. And you remember the way that Aaron describes that process, that he, he had everybody throw the gold in and out came the calf. He didn't shape it. He, oh, no. But he did. But here in Exodus 32, verse 8, it says, this is the Lord, and He says, They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. That is, he's going to take Moses, one of the descendants of those he made a promise to, and create a new nation out of him, and destroy everyone else because of the way they're behaving. But notice verse 11, Then Moses entreated the Lord his God. And he spends time pleading with God for them. He says, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. I want you to catch something about what Moses said to God. And that is that there was never an argument made about what the people deserved. You catch that? There was not an argument about what was deserved. It, it, to argue that is to say that God had poor judgment. And God never does. His judgment is always absolutely correct. There wasn't an argument about what they deserved, but it was a plea for God to express part of His character at that moment. And that part was His mercy, His compassion on them. A short time later in Exodus 34, go ahead and turn over there. Exodus 34, in verse 6, the Lord passes by Moses and He proclaims His name to him. That is, He proclaims His own nature, the way that He's made up. 
He proclaims himself to Moses. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth in worship. Did you catch what God listed first? The very first thing is the compassionate and gracious after his own name. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Compassion, that mercy is within God's nature and it's the reason that He listened to Moses in this case. And He didn't uh, just destroy the Israelite people from the face of the earth and recreate a new nation through Moses. It's the reason that He listened to Abraham. Remember Abraham outside of Sodom and Gomorrah looking and walking with the Lord. And he says, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Would you spare the city on account of the 50 righteous? And then he keeps bumping him down 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And God says, okay, on account of the 10, I won't destroy them. It's the reason that God agreed to that. It's the reason that God didn't destroy his people for their idolatry in the wilderness. And that is that when there's one who is pleasing in his sight, who seeks compassion for another, it is in His character to listen. And we see that same character displayed in the book of Amos. Let's turn back to Amos again and look at Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. This begins a section of visions that Amos had. There's five visions. Amos chapter 7 verse 1 is the first. Verse 4 is the second, verse 7 is the third, chapter 8, verse 1, and then chapter 9, verse 1 are the fourth and fifth. We're going to look at the first two of the five because that's where we find God's willingness to stay His judging hand, to stay His hand of destruction. Here in Amos chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing, and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And again in verse 4, a very similar image, one of fire. Fire that would destroy the people. And in verse 5, then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And the Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Now as we go through the rest of those visions, we start to see that the time when God would agree to those things had indeed passed for the nation of Israel. But as, as a way of communicating the message to Amos of how patient he had been with them, he gives him two visions. 
Two visions where he listens to Amos when he says, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? You realize he's speaking of the greatest nation. The one that was the foremost of the nations. It was mighty. It was strong. And yet when he speaks to God about such a nation, he says, how can they stand? They're small. Same thing in Amos 7 verse 2 and verse 5, except for one word, pardon and stop. It's the plea of a godly man for undeserved pardon which caused God to turn His wrath for a time. Just like Abram, just like Moses, and now just like Amos with the northern kingdom, God's willing to turn His wrath away for a time if there's a prayer offered that humbly seeks pardon from Him. Our prayers, our prayers should include our country. They should include our country's well-being, but also for pardon. Not deserved forgiveness, not deserved stopping of God's judgment, but, but a plea for pardon with recognition of His power and rulership over all creation. We should be praying to God to pardon our nation, to show compassion by giving us more time to repent of the sins which are so frequently committed by leaders and citizens alike. Look at Matthew chapter 9 with me. We're going to talk some about, about God's view of compassion and how it's seen in Christ. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As he went on from there, or as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors? And sinners. That's the important question. Why is he doing this? Why is he there? Why does he allow them to remain? Jesus heard this in verse 12. He said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So the question of why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Answer, because they were the ones in need and because Jesus doesn't leave someone with a spiritual need without serving them. He had compassion on them by spending time with them, eating with them. He refused to show them justice by condemning them for their sins in that moment, but instead compassionately, ultimately gave Himself on the cross to call them to righteousness. We see that in a number of different passages noted that particular event. But in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, we see it especially. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus didn't die to provide us justice. He died to show compassion. Compassion is in the nature of God. Compassion is what He shows to us first. It's what He shows to us first. And compassion is about taking the ledger out of the equation. It's about taking away the the record of wrongs. It's about taking away the record of debt. Jesus didn't die because we deserved it in a ledger book. He died because He wanted to give us better than what we deserved and something far better than what we were owed. And with that said, we need to recognize something about the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat the world around us. That is that if all we ever do is render what's owed, we have fallen drastically and horrifically short of the example of our Savior. He gave us an example to do more than than what's required. To go the second mile. To give more, just as He gave more. Let us show compassion to each other, to the lost. And as we do that, honor our Savior who showed compassion to us. We can only pray for God to show compassion to our nation, to us, if we're willing to show compassion to them and to each other ourselves. And we need to realize that our prayers will be hindered. They will be hurt if we choose to behave without compassion. Look at Matthew chapter 7 with me. Last passage we'll look at tonight together. Matthew chapter 7. And let's read verse 12. Something very familiar, something very easy to remember. It's probably on a lot of refrigerators and kindergarten doorways. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And that's a good rule. We call it the golden rule. It's a great way to live your entire life is by that principle alone. Jesus is in effect saying if you do that, you're going to be treating people the right way. But I often stop and I think, what's the context of that principle? What's he talking about? And what's the effect if I don't follow that? Why don't you look back up to verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then he goes on speaking of a father and a son. The son asking the father for something good, bread, and he won't give him a stone. The question to ask is, when you pray to God, How do you want him to treat you? And when someone makes a request of you, how do you treat them? That's an important link to draw. When you ask God, how do you want him to treat you? And do you treat others who request of you the same way? Or do you treat them with 
coldness. You see, if you treat others the way you want God to treat you, you can expect Him to treat you with compassion and with forgiveness. But if you fail to do that, if we fail to do that, Matthew chapter 7 verse 2 offers a frightening statement. And that is, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If we fail to exemplify the compassion of our Lord toward each other and toward the world, that compassion, the amount we've shown, will be measured back to us. We need to take great care with that. Our prayers for our nation will be hindered if we don't. Our prayers for each other. Our prayers for the lost. Treat people with compassion. Pray to God to pardon the sins of our nation. Grant more time for us to return. That's our prayer to Him. Not that we deserve more time. Not that we are owed anything from Him. But rather that we are praying for His nature to win. That He would be compassionate to us. Because without Him we are very small. That's what Amos chapter 7 and verse 2 relates. Is that even the greatest nation in the world is very small and can't stand on its own without the power of God behind it. And that's where we are today. We need to live with humility toward God by showing compassion to those in need both in and out of the church and to teach others to do the same. Jesus our Savior didn't leave spiritual needs unmet. And I like that thought that he, when there was someone with a spiritual need, he stood and took the time to meet it. He did so with those tax collectors and sinners for which he suffered insult. And tonight we're here to do the same thing for each other. We've looked some in the scriptures together and studied some good passages together. but we're here to show compassion to each other as well. And tonight, if you have a spiritual need, don't leave without having it met. We're here to help each other. We're here to pray for God to forgive our sins. We're here to strengthen each other so that as we go through our week, we will walk in the light. If you feel yourself slipping into the darkness for a while, don't leave going further into it. And if you have any spiritual need tonight, especially if you need to be baptized into Christ in submission and obedience to His will, then we're here for you. And we ask if you've got any need, please make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing.